Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Hebrews, chapter 3. Book of Hebrews, chapter 3. We'll read the whole chapter from verse 1 to verse 19. Thus says the word of God. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who hath built the house hath more honor than the house. For every house is built by some men, but he that built all things is God. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we? If we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, Today, if he, he will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the day of provocation, in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Wherefore, I was grieved with that generation, and said, they do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. While it is say, Today, if you hear, will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the day of provocation. For some, when they had heard, did provoke, Howbeit, not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. But with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcass fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believed not? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. This far the reading of God's Word. We'll turn this morning once again to the book of Hebrews. It's time to chapter 3. But before we continue our exposition, let us come before the Lord once again and ask for His blessing. Let's pray. O Lord our God, as we have just sang, Lord, we make this our petition before Thee, that, O God, be merciful to me, on thy grace I rest my plea. Plenteous and compassion, thou blot out my transgressions now. O oh Lord, this is our prayer. That even to thee, Lord, thou would turn our eyes from our sins unto thee. The only Savior is Jesus Christ. Our only hope in life and death. O oh Lord, let us turn our eyes to thee, to our Lord and Savior. And come to thee. We pray all these in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the goals of the book of Hebrews is to show that Christ is greater than everything else. Christ is true and better. Christ is far greater, far superior than everything else that there is. We saw how Christ is greater than the angels. And today we'll see how he's greater than any other mediator, greater even than Moses, the well-known prophet of the Old Testament. 
the Jewish believers were feeling tempted to go back to the sacrifices and rituals of the Old Testament covenant. Most likely, at the time that this letter was written, the temple was still standing. And then they were feeling tempted to go back to those rituals, to go back to this go-between between man and God, to use these rituals as a mediator once again between them and God. So to warn them against the danger of neglecting the Son of God, the author moves from Jesus being superior to the angels to Jesus being superior to Moses, to the prophet that they would hold very highly. That if the former, if the angels had already challenged the Jewish believers by speaking that Christ is greater than Moses, the very founder of the Pentateuch, the founder of the Torah, it would be very shocking to these Jewish, new Jewish converts. Moses was great indeed, but Jesus is greater. The the objective of the author is not to minimize Moses, but is to show how Jesus is far greater. If Moses is faithful, Jesus is superior because he is even more faithful. It's it's, It's true. Moses was a faithful servant, but Jesus is called the Son, the Son of God. So today we will go back to the wilderness to learn important lessons from the wilderness, from the God's people pilgrimage in the wilderness. Important lessons from the Israelites that apply to today's church. And to do so, we'll meditate on our text under three points. First, a greater mediator, verses 1 to 6. Second, a greater exhortation, verses 7 to 11. And third, a greater consequence, verses 12 to 19. This chapter will warn us of the danger of falling into the same sins as the wilderness generation did. So first of all, a greater mediator. Verse 1. Wherefore, holy brethren. You see, now we can be called holy After what we heard last week, that Jesus sanctifies us, verses 2, chapter chapter 2, verse 11, we can be called holy and partakers of the heavenly calling. See, this verse is continuing what the author taught us from chapter 2. He taught us that we are united to Christ in such a profound way that we can now be called holy partakers with Christ of the heavenly calling. Because we, because we are united to Christ, we share of the same thing, of the same calling that he does. We can only become and be called partakers of the heavenly calling because first he partook of our nature. And that's the very same word that appears in chapter 1, verse 9. He partook our nature so that we could partake of His heavenly calling. He shares that nature in order to be the apostle and high priest that He is. From from this reality, from this indicative, flows the imperative of our text. Consider the apostle and high priest of our profession Christ Jesus. This is the only place that Jesus is called an apostle. Jesus is called the apostle. By by definition, an apostle is someone who is sent forth as a messenger. He's sent forth from God to bring something. He's commissioned to fulfill a mission. Jesus is the apostle sent on the mission of being the one mediator between God and men. From before the foundation of the world, he was set aside to be the Son, sent forth from the Father to be the perfect mediator, to become the true and better prophet and the true and better apostle that we have. Jesus was sent by the Father. We hear that throughout Scripture. For example, John chapter 3, 34 
Just as the angels, that by the way means messenger, and Moses were sent forth, so Jesus was sent by God. Moses was sent to deliver a message. He was the one who carried out God's word, the great prophet. He was called, he could, or he could be called, almost the apostle of the Old Testament. And through Moses, God revealed that he is the great I am. Moses brought great revelations of God to his people. And here the author is drawing a comparison between Jesus and Moses. You see, Moses was a prophet or a apostle, but Jesus is the prophet, the high priest. Jesus is God's ultimate revelation, right? As we saw in the opening of the letter to the Hebrews, verses 1 to 4 from chapter 1. When Moses came down from Sinai, from Mount Sinai in Exodus 34, it says that his face was shining. He contemplated so much glory that now his face was shining. But Moses had a reflected glory, a glory that came from God and was being reflected in him. But Jesus is the brightness of his glory, chapter 1, verse 3. You see, he's superior to the angels. He's superior to Moses or any other prophet. This is why the main calling of this verse is consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. The main calling of the whole first section can be summarized in these words. Consider Jesus. For he is the, greater, the greatest mediator. Why should we consider Jesus as our apostle and high priest? Because Jesus was faithful. In verse 2, the author affirms how Moses is called faithful over the house, over God's house. Which the readers already knew very well, right? From the Old Testament, they knew that Moses was indeed faithful. But now he explained that Christ is also faithful, even more faithful than Moses. Moses was faithful in everything that he did. He did what he had to do, no doubt. He was the great prophet of the Old Testament. But Jesus was superior. Jesus was faithful in his living. He was faithful in bearing our sins. He was faithful even in dying for us in our behalf. So it is logical that we should not turn away from Jesus to anything else. Because he is superior Verse 3, for this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who hath built the house hath more honor than the house. Jesus is more worthy than Moses. He is worthy of more glory than Moses, because the builder of the house deserves more glory than the house itself. And Moses is part of the house, just like you and me. Verse 6. But Jesus is the builder of the house. And then verse 4, he makes a somewhat obvious statement. He says that houses don't simply come into existence out of nothing. But if there is a house, there has to be a builder of the house. Or in other words, in order to be a creature... There has to be a creator behind it. And the creator of all things is Jesus Christ. The builder, the divine builder. And this is the first distinction between Moses and Jesus. Moses is part of the building. Jesus is the builder. The second distinction is shown in verses 5 and 6. Moses was a servant over the house, but Jesus is called the son over the house. You see, the author doesn't diminish Moses. He's not speaking bad things about Moses, but he's showing how Jesus is superior in everything. Jesus is greater. Moses, indeed, Moses verily was faithful in all his house. See, the book of Hebrews is different than a political campaign as we have nowadays. In a political campaign, in order for a candidate to appear to be better than the others, he will try to diminish the others. He will speak evil things of the others. He will 
vilify others if needed in order to appear to be superior. He was slander the other candidates. But the author to the Hebrew doesn't say anything bad about Moses or about the angels as he did last time. But he simply shows how indeed they were great. The angels are great. Moses was great. But Jesus is greater. Moses was great. Then how much greater is Jesus Christ? The house here is not used in the sense of a building, a physical building as we have, but of the people focusing on those for which he had come to redeem. We are stones of the spiritual house in which God dwells. Verse 6. But Christ, as a son over his own house, whose house are we? Against what many Judaizers believed, Moses was not the one who created God's house. He was not the one who instituted God's house, but he was Jesus, the builder of the house, who before Abraham was, I am. He was the son, the establisher of the house. And Jesus is not simply the builder of the house, but he is the son over the house. He's the ruler of the house. He's the one who sits on the throne and rules over the house. And the author here is borrowing from Numbers chapter 12, verse 7. In this passage, Aaron and Miriam questioned, or they were questioning Moses. And in their jealousy, they affirmed, Hath the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses? Hath he not spoken also by us? So they were questioning Moses and Moses' authority. And the Lord affirms that indeed he spoke through visions and dreams. But with Moses, he spoke mouth to mouth, showing the preeminence, the importance of Moses as a mediator. His mediatorial, mediatorial role was incomparable in the Old Testament. It was unique. He is the great prophet of the Old Testament. But even Moses was just a servant over the house. Jesus is the son of the house. How much greater? There are similarities and distinctions between Moses and Jesus. They were both sent out. They both executed prophetic work. That is, they both sent a message. They were both faithful. But Moses is part of the house. Jesus is the builder of the house. Moses is a servant. Jesus is the son, the ruler. And here comes the warning for us. Now the author brings the warning for us. Whose house are we if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end? This is going to be the great distinction between the wilderness people and what it is being called for us to fulfill. We share with Christ if we hold our confidence to the end. That is very very interesting in terms of chronology. See, he's saying that we share with Christ right now in the present if we hold our confidence to the end in the future. So it's interesting because the present is a result of the future. We are only God's house if we persevere in this confidence. And he will mention this again in verse 14. This is why it's so important to consider Jesus. To fix our eyes upon him. We are God's house whose master is Christ. And we need to remember here that this letter was written to the new converters right before the destruction of the temple. These people would go through the destruction of the temple, being cast out of Jerusalem. They would lose their houses, lose their jobs, lose their families. They would lose their places of worship. They would lose everything. So this letter was written precisely to them in that time to prepare them for what was coming. 
see how this is important. They would be prepared to face the persecution that was coming for them. And now I I can ask you, are you prepared to face the same thing? Are you prepared to worship God, to be faithful, to consider Jesus, even if He removes our place of worship? What would happen if we lost our place of worship? Would you you be as faithful to God as you are right now if we lost the physical building around us, if we lost all the comfort that we have? Would you be faithful unto the end? Would we consider Jesus even if we lost all things? It is easy to take for granted all the comfort that we have. Sometimes we even become spoiled by these things. In America, you can almost choose a church as you choose an ice cream flavor. I would like more of this and less of that, and we become spoiled by these things. Are we ready to be God's house, even if God's building is removed from above our heads? You see, God's house is not the building where you are sitting right now, but the people sitting on it. That is God's house. Whose house are we? Doesn't matter where you are or what happens around you. Consider Jesus. Fix your eyes upon him and never turn them away for anything else. For there is no mediator greater than him. With this in mind, the author moves now to exhort his hearers. A greater exhortation. In these verses, the author will bring a long citation from Psalm 95, verses 7 to 11. The longest citation in the book of Hebrews so far. It is interesting how he introduces this quotation. Verse 7. Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, today, if you will hear his voice. Interesting how he uses the Holy Spirit as the author of the Old Testament. He doesn't say as the psalmist has has said, but as the Holy Spirit says. He's pointing out that the author of of the Old Testament is ultimately the Holy Spirit. The whole Bible has the divine pen behind it. And by affirming that these words are not simply of the psalmist, but of the Holy Spirit... That's a stronger way to introduce his quotation. Saying it's not simply the psalmist who says, but the Holy Spirit says to you. That's an interesting play on time as well. The Holy Spirit didn't simply say back then in the Old Testament, in the Psalm. No, he speaks to us today if you hear his voice. Whenever we hear these words, that he is speaking to us. It's true, God spoke to Moses, and now he speaks through his son to us, directly, today. And the call comes in verse 8. Harden not your hearts, as in the provocation, in the day of temptation in the wilderness. This chapter talks a lot about provocation, about temptation, about when the Israelites flipped the table and they put God into the test. They tempted God. They tested God the day of provocation. Not simply that they were tested, but they dared to test God. Verse 8 points back to the desert, showing that the Lord has the right to prove us, but we don't have the right to test Him. Yet this is what happened in the desert. By the rebellious Israelite, they put God into the test. This day of temptation was not one single day, but many days throughout their journey, throughout their pilgrimage in the desert. It was a sequence of failures by the Israelites. In Exodus 17, in the wilderness, the people murmured and doubted the Lord. Exodus 17, verse 7 Because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? They were 
tempting God, testing God. Similarly, in Numbers 14, the people murmured against the Lord again. And the sentence comes to the people in Numbers 14, 27. The Lord announces this. How long shall I bear with this evil congregation which murmur against me? What a terrible sentence. What a terrible sentence to hear from the Lord. Can, can you imagine if this was the description of our church, the label of our church, how long shall I bear with this evil congregation which murmur against me? What a terrible description of a church this is. And the question is, are we singing praises with Christ in the midst of the congregation, as we, he said in chapter 2, verse 12? Or are we murmuring, complaining with the Israelites in the deserts, as in the day of provocation? In which group are we? See, are we singing with Christ in the midst of the congregation? Or are we tempting God, testing God, putting Him to the test? What a terrible description of a church this is. And modern evangelical churches spend so much time and effort planning and trying to search the best phrasing, the best publicity to look more appealing in the eyes of the world, to sound more appealing to the world. Let me tell you, it only matters how we sound before God. And not how we sound or how we look like in the eyes of the world, but in the eyes of the Lord. What makes the difference is whether or not we are living in hard obedience to the Lord. The Holy Spirit calls us today, harden not your hearts. He demands hard obedience to Him. It is easy to come to church on Sundays and play the Christian, pretend, play the Christian, but where are our hearts before the Lord? It doesn't seem, demands a corporative faithfulness to Him, but individual and private, heart obedience, heart love to Him. Harden not your hearts. Ask yourself this question. Am I praising Christ in the midst of the congregation? When I sing praises in the church, am I singing these praises with heart love for Christ, with Christ and love for Him? Or am I complaining? Even on the Lord's Day, am I just complaining before the Lord, murmuring with the Israelites in the desert? What defines my Christian pilgrimage before the Lord? Is it praising Him with Christ to whom I am united? Complaining with Israelites over and over again. The wilderness generation saw God's works for 40 years. Verse 9. They experienced God's grace delivering them from Egypt and carrying them through the desert for 40 years. They had God's provision for them for 40 years. But even seeing all that God had given them, they turned away from the Lord and murmured against Him. Not surprisingly, then, we read what God said to them in verse 10, that God was grieved with that generation. They had known my ways. They had tasted what the Lord has done for them. And yet, they were so prone to wander, says the Lord. And he even says that they always do this. They were always testing, doubting the Lord. Always doing this. Through all those 40 years, always testing the Lord. Despite all that God did in their lives, it still wasn't enough for them. You see, they didn't think they lived to please God, but that God lived to please them. They flipped the table. 
They were not there to please the Creator, but to be pleased by Him. So the sentence comes in verse 11. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Because of all their unbelief, the Lord didn't give them the rest that was promised to their fathers. Numbers 14, 14, 23. Surely they shall not see the land which I swear unto their fathers, neither shall any of them that provoked me see it. The Israelites had all the privilege, all the possible privilege on earth. They had it all. They were children of Abraham. They were miraculous rescued from Egypt. They saw the ten plagues. They saw all that God did. They had the greatest prophet. They had Moses preaching to them. And by the way, having a bad, pre- bad preacher will not serve as an excuse as well in the last day. Because if you hear his word being preaching, being preached to you, faithfully, the fault is on you. There's no excuse. But even so, they had the best preacher. They had Moses, who the Lord spoke mouth to mouth, whose faith, face was shining before them. But they took it all for granted. In modern days, they thought they were the cream of the cake, the most special, the most privileged of all. They thought they were, what nowadays people would say in social medias, hashtag Calvinists, hashtag reform, God's special people. They had it all. They had all the privileges, but they took it all for granted. They thought labels could get them into God's rest. They thought that by being who they were, God would look away their sins. But God looked right through their labels into their hearts. He said, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation which murmur against me? And he was grieved with that generation. Brothers, if this warning doesn't bring a chill into your body, I would be very worried. Because this warning is for you and me. Do not take for granted what we have. Do not take for granted where you are, or who you are, and where you are sitting in. God, God sees right through you, right, right through these labels. He sees your heart. And that's why he says, harden not your hearts, as in the day of provocation. Christianity is not a game. It's not a label. It's not something that you wear, that you put on. It has to be true in your heart. And I have have pleaded with you with these words. But now I'll bring the commandment not by my authority for a carry none, but by the Holy Spirit authority who speaks to us through his word. The author quoted from Psalm 95 and now he's going to apply to us. He's going to apply to us the greater consequence. Verse 12. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. The author now moves to show what are the applications from this text. What are the applications that we gather from the wilderness generation, from the sins that they committed, from their failures? What can we learn from that generation? If we don't take heed of ourselves, this evil heart of unbelief will grow in us as well. But he gives us a few antidotes to guard from unbelief, which we will examine in these verses. The first one is this, in verse 12, self-examination. First antidote, self-examination. The author is aiming at the church, warning believers that in any of you, it's possible to be a hard 
of unbelief. He's warning us, take heed, examine yourselves. Examine yourself. See if this heart of unbelief is not growing in you. Because it's possible to grow in you. He knows that even though he's speaking to a church, there are some who have a heart of unbelief. And the word, of, the word unbelief here is really no faith or faithless. The absence of faith. And because of the deceitfulness of sin, he gives this call to them, to, for them to examine their hearts, examine themselves. A commentator say this, Unbelief, the failure to trust in God and to believe His promises, is the essence of an evil heart that refuses to trust in Him. Lack of trust leads to failure to obey you see, Israel failed to obey God as they stood at the mar- on the margins of the promised land. They failed to obey God, to trust in Him. They didn't trust God, and because of that, they didn't obey God. They tested God. And now the author of Hebrews is commanding us to examine our hearts, to see if the same heart of unbelief and distrust is in us. And he's not speaking here of a temporal unbelief or of the valleys that a normal Christian life goes through. Goes through. He's warning us about allowing faithlessness to grow in us, to grow in our hearts. For that is a departure from the Lord, to depart from the living God. It's to depart from the source of life itself and to embrace death. As that wilderness generation did. The second antidote for unbelief is church communion. Church communion. This might sound simplistic, but it's actually a powerful tool. Verse 13. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. One of the antidotes to dealing with the deceitfulness of sin is to foster mutual accountability. It's to foster mutual accountability, to live in communion with the other saints, to exhort one another. Modern evangelicalism nowadays, many think that congregation is an option, that I have the right to choose whether or not I want to congregate, to come to church. But it isn't. Life of of communion with the church body is not optional. As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. Proverbs 27, 17. This is a God-instructed way to grow in grace before him. To instruct one another, to exhort one another, to have communion and fellowship with the other sense, to hold one another up. A God-instructed way, an antidote against unbelief. And sometimes in church it's easy to go oblivious of how other people are suffering. And we have this mentality, yes, that's important, but that is the elder's job. To find out who is suffering, why they're suffering, what they're going through, that is the elder's job. And that is true. They are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Hebrews 13, verse 8. We didn't come to that text. But it is your job, too. Let me tell you, it is easier to get lost in a bigger church. It's easier to get lost and get by in a bigger church and not be noticed. But if we don't have the culture of exhorting one another in a smaller church will not foster this culture in a big, big church either. You don't need to be an expert to exhort and counsel. You just need to care and love the body of Christ of which you are part. When we fail to exhort one another in the small problems, we give space for the big problems to grow. This is why we are called to mutual exhortation daily. 
daily, constantly exhorting one another. A constant process. See, it is easier to fight the little seeds of problems than it is to then chop down a whole tree of big problems. If we don't take care of the small seeds of sin, these little seeds will grow, will, will grow roots, find roots, and become big trees. This is why we are called to exhort one another daily. A life of communion, fellowship, exhorting, teaching, mutual accountability and love for one another. Daily. Then in verse 14, he reaffirms that we are partakers of Christ. So last time how Christ has been united with us. And this is the result of his union with us. We are now partakers of Christ. We are already partakers of Christ. Not simply will be, but we are partakers of Christ. We are already God's people. We are already God's house in the present. But the author is saying here that we are partakers if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. So what he's saying here, as has said earlier, is that holding fast until the end is an evidence it's a proof that we are indeed partakers of Christ. He's calling us to preserve to the end, unlike the, what the Israelites did. Notice on verse 15, he brings back the warning from the day of provocation. Interesting that the author is saying that you are the one hardening your heart. You remember in the Old Testament, when Moses was delivering God's people, and in Exodus chapter 7, God says that he was the one hardening Pharaoh's heart. So God is the one who hardens the heart. But here, the author to the Hebrews is picking up this theme, and then he's saying, you are the ones hardening your own hearts by allowing these things to grow in you. So this becomes another antidote for unbelief. The third antidote is prepare your hearts. Guard your hearts. Watch over your hearts. Come eager and willing to submit to God's word. To hear his word. To submit to his word. Prepare your hearts. Guard your hearts. Now that he has his heart to us. He will tell us what are the consequences of not obeying these commandments, verses 16 to 18, gives a series of rhetorical questions by the author used to drive home his argument. Do you want to know what will happen to you if you don't hear and obey his commandments? Well, the Israelites didn't. They didn't hear God's command. They rebelled against God. So hear what happened to them. They knew all that God did for them, but they resisted Him. They were brought forth out of Egypt, but they never entered God's rest. Verse 17 says that they sinned against God, and for 40 years they were stubborn. The result of their sin was to die in the, in the wilderness and never enter the promised land. They were forever cast out from God's rest. This was the punishment for neglecting the words spoken through Moses. What would be the consequence of neglecting the words spoken through Jesus, who is superior than Moses? Their life becomes a warning to us today. And the summary of the whole section is in verse 19. So we see that they could not enter in the house because of unbelief. This whole section is bracketed together by the theme of unbelief. You see, verse 12, warning against unbelief. And now verse 19, bringing the conclusion concerning unbelief. The Israelites didn't enter God's rest because of unbelief. And, that, and all that can be summarized with one word. All their stubbornness, all their complaints can be summarized in one word. Unbelief. 
unbelief makes you doubt God's promises. And by your faithless, you become susceptible to all kinds of sins. Verse 3, verse 8, to a hardened heart. Verse 9, to tempt God, to test God. Verse 10, to go astray. Verse 17, to all kinds of sins. Because of unbelief. The Christians, Jews, were tempted to disbelieve God's promises. And that they would be better by going back into the shadows of the old covenant, of the old administration of the covenant. Going back to Judaism. The author of the Hebrews is saying, Take heed, brother. Unbelief has led to disobedience in the wilderness, and God punished them. But since Jesus is superior than Moses, what will happen to you? Now that a greater revelation was given to us, what would happen if we neglect this greater word? And perhaps none of us here have the desire of going back to the Old Testament. So perhaps some of us are thinking, well, that sin I don't have. I don't have this desire of going back into the Old Testament rituals and ceremonies. I'm free from that. But we find a way to disobedience through other means. We still disbelieve God, God's promises other ways. We disbelieve that God can provide us rest. So we seek money, stability, to guarantee us rest. Even though we might even feel more unstable the more we pursue these things. Less rested, the more we pursue them. We disbelieve that God can provide us joy. So we give in into momentary pleasures. We give in to pornography, drinks, gambling. Anything that gives us a quickly feeling of joy, even though it quickly fades away as well. We disbelieve that God can provide us safety. So it depends on all kinds of drugs, safety procedures, security systems. But instead of controlling our anxiety, it feeds our anxiety and we simply live in constant fear. Some of these things are not wrong in themselves. But if you depend in any of them to find rest, joy, safety, you are pursuing an easier route to God's promises, an easier route to satisfaction. You are trying to bypass obedience, to bypass God himself, to obtain the promises of God in the end. Faith in God will proceed, will produce obedience to God, and a life of obedience will find God's promises in the end. Because just as certain as we will not enjoy rest if we disobey, if we disbelieve, we will also certainly find God's rest if we do believe in Him. This message would remove the floor from the Judaizers' feet. The Jewish community had a high view of Moses, but a foggy view of Jesus. But perhaps we have the same problem. We have a limited view of the glory of Jesus. He has a greater glory, a greater honor, far superior to anything else than the angels, than Moses, than Aaron, than Melchizedek, as he will show later. He's far superior, for he is God. Only when we realize how big our God is, we can understand how he can save a sinner like you and me. It needs a great Savior to save a great sinner. The goal of the altar to the Hebrews is not to minimize or to diminish anything. He doesn't think little of angels or he doesn't speak badly of Moses. It's not a political campaign, but the goal is to reshape our vision, to correct our lenses so that we can see Jesus for who he is the incomparable Savior that we have. is greater than Moses. He is the one who gives us the ultimate rest. He gives us greater warnings, greater consequences for not taking heed of this word. 
So our call today is take heed. Hear his words. He's better than Moses. He gives us a greater warning. And there are greater consequences for neglecting him. So brothers, today, if you hear his voice, harden not your hearts. There is a rest. The promises of God are true. There is a rest. As the altar will show in the next session, there is a rest promised for those who believe in him and come to him. For our Savior is greater than our sins, and he is the only one worthy to be praised. Amen. Let's come before the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father and great Lord of Lords, we come, Lord, today before the living God. And it is only through Jesus Christ, our only mediator, greater than Moses, greater than the angels, greater than the Levites and the priests, greater than Melchizedek, our only Savior that we can stand before Thee, Lord. So we plead before Thy throne, Lord, that we can take heed of this message. O oh Lord, let not our hearts be hardened before Thee, but let us live a life of obedience, of trusting in Thee. The promises are real. Our Savior is real, and He has come, and there is no other like Him. Help us, Lord, to trust in Thee, and to walk the pilgrimage that is set before us, faithfully to the end, until the day comes, and until finally we enter into Thy rest. So we pray all these in Jesus' very name. Amen.